I love uh, Resurrection Sunday, Easter, Easter Sunday. I love it so much that I wore a tie. Now, I don't know if this is, is this still true? I haven't worn a tie in a year, <laughs> you know, this day last year. Uh, but I think in the 90s or something, they had things called power ties, right? Didn't, is that a thing anymore? You tie-wearing people? Uh, I think this is a power tie, wouldn't you say? Purple for power. And we're going to be talking about power this morning. And I want to start with a, a, a little drama, a little scenario. Suppose someone is in big trouble. They've been captured by an, an evil force and, and forced into slavery. And what they need is someone to come and rescue them. They need a savior. But undertaking their rescue will be a dangerous affair. Their captor is well prepared well-armed, any attempt at rescue could mean death for their would-be Savior. So not just any Savior will do. He needs two very important qualities. First, he must be highly motivated, willing to risk or even give his life for the one who's captured. And second, he must have the ability to pull the rescue off. He needs to have the resources, the, the training to deal with the evil force and affect salvation. Now this situation may sound familiar to some. It's actually the plot from the movie Taken, starring Liam Neeson. Right? In the movie, Liam's daughter is taken by an evil power for the purpose of of forcing her into slavery. And because of Liam's great love for her, he, he is highly motivated to attempt her rescue. Now, most fathers can understand this. Most fathers would be highly motivated by the love they have for their daughter, but most fathers don't have the ability to pull off a rescue. Most fathers don't have the resources and training to deal with an evil power. But Liam isn't just any father. He's not only motivated, but he has the ability to pull off the rescue. Warning the captors, he says, I have a very particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a very long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. And of course, thanks to the script writers, the captors don't heed his warning and they pay with their lives. Because Liam is highly motivated by love and highly equipped, he has the power to save Now, as I described the plot in the beginning of this movie Taken, some of you might have thought I was talking about something else, that I had another Savior in mind, that I wasn't thinking about some fictional movie Savior, but I was thinking about the Savior, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And to be honest, I wanted you to think that. But before we apply this scenario to Jesus, we need to adjust the plot slightly. In the movie Taken, Liam's daughter is captured against her will and forced into slavery. But we, we who need, who needed rescue, on the other hand, prior to our salvation, willingly serve our captor. We saw this, uh, if you were with us in our study through Romans, we saw it in chapter 6 where Paul writes, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Prior to our salvation, 
we presented ourselves as obedient slaves to sin. In fact, you could say we cooperated with the evil power that enslaved us. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure how many Taken movies there have been. I, I know there's at least three. But if they, if they were to make a Taken 4 based on the scenario of our salvation, instead of Liam Neeson rescuing a family or a friend or a daughter, a wife, he would be rescuing one of the evil villain's henchmen. And that makes our rescue and Christ's love all the more amazing. When Christ came to save us, we were not part of His family. We were not loving sons and daughters. We were in rebellion against God. We were willingly serving our captor, sin. Just considering if I should use uh, something Chad said to me this morning. Something he said to his class. He said, uh, suppose you were God. I decided to use it, by the way, I'm using it right now. Uh, suppose you were God and, 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 and all of creation, everything you had created was down there and, and looking at you and said, F you, God, what would you do? But God was still motivated by love to save us. Paul writes in Romans 5.8, but God, my two favorite words in the Bible, but God, because it's, it's always going wrong. And then those two words come, but God, shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were in rebellion, while we were enemies, while we were evil henchmen, while we were saying, F you, Christ died for us. We saw this last week. We talked about it in detail when we looked at what motivated Christ to go to the cross. How despite our rebellion against Him, the love of Christ drove Him to the cross. Or after being betrayed, after being mocked, after being beaten and spit upon, he died. And he died one of the most torturous, horrible deaths ever conceived by humanity. And he not only died, he, he, as he died, when he died, he took on the wrath of God. It wasn't just uh, the wrath of men that he experienced. He experienced the wrath of God. He experienced the punishment we deserved. Christ's love motivated him to become uh, the sacrificial lamb. As John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ became the sacrificial lamb for our sins. So the cross clearly demonstrates the amazing love Christ had to become our Savior. There can be no question of Christ's motivation. But what about His ability? What about his ability? If you didn't know, if you were just watching the crucifixion, if you were, if you were one of his disciples, if you're one of the uh, Pharisees, one of the public, and, and he's crucified, wow. You're seeing no ability there. He's just dying. He's dying a horrible death. Did he have the ability? Did he have the resources to deal with the evil power? Would he pull off this rescue? Put simply, did or, or does Christ's death on the cross have the power to save us? And of course, we know because, uh, because we're past. We know the rest of the story. We know the answer is yes, hallelujah. But that brings us to the resurrection. That brings us to Resurrection Sunday, to today. 
to what we commemorate. The resurrection reveals the power of God in Christ Jesus to save us from our sins. We see this sort of in a backward way in 1 Corinthians 15-14. Paul writes, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Suppose Christ had not been raised. What does that mean? What I say doesn't matter. What you believe doesn't matter about Christ. The resurrection proves the power of God to save. It's the power of the resurrection that confirms our message and our faith. If there's no resurrection, then there's no power to save. As Christians, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and our faith in Jesus Christ is vanity. It's pointless if there's no resurrection. But if the resurrection is true, if Jesus on the third day rose from the dead, then the opposite holds. And you need to know this. You need to pay attention to this. Christ does have the power to save. The Gospel is true. And our faith is sure if He rose from the dead. Now today, I'm not going to go into the the abundant evidence for the resurrection. We've done that in the past. And we'll certainly do it again. If you're skeptical, I'd love to talk to you. I can point to great resources that give what in my mind is, is actually overwhelming historical and logical evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But today... I want us to look not at the proof of the resurrection, but of the power of the resurrection. How the resurrection not only reveals God's power to save, but how the resurrection transforms. How the resurrection empowers us to live out our salvation. And we're going to do that by looking at at the prayer to know God's resurrection power. This prayer is found in the book of Ephesians. Uh, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. After telling the church of the, of the many spiritual blessings that they have in Christ, he's, he's talking to believers, he's writing to the church, he's telling them all they've received in, in Jesus Christ. And it's amazing. Read those first 14 verses if you'd like. Then at verse 15, he writes, For this reason, for all of that you've received, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He's praying for Christians, for those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what he prays. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you've been called. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And here's what we'll mainly focus on today. Paul prays that Christians would know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. That's what we're going to look at today. Paul prays that the Christians in Ephesus would know this immeasurable, would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward them. 
It's not just power out there. It's not theoretical power. It's power toward them. And it's my prayer that today we would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us. And, no, and, and the knowing here, just so, you, just so you know, is not just a, a head knowledge. It includes the experience of the heart. It goes in through our, through our eyes, through our, our vision, through our ears, what we hear. It goes into our mind. And then God, uh, in His grace, transforms it into a heart. It's my prayer that, that we would know God's power to overcome, uh, overcome sin and experience victory. We would know God's power to experience obedience of His will and His word. We would know God's power to experience love for, for God and, and for people. We would know God's power, because we need God's power for those th- these things. We can't do them on our own. We would know God's power to experience being His witnesses, sharing His love. We would know God's power in every area of our life. We would experience His power in every need, in every sorrow, in every difficult situation, that Christ would be our all in all. Now, according to Paul's prayer, this knowing and experiencing God's power in our lives is related to the power of God displayed in the resurrection and what follows. There's a resurrection, and then there's some other things that happen to Jesus. And the reason for that is because the resurrection was not only powerful, it was permanent. Jesus rose... And Jesus is alive today. The resurrection means Jesus lives. Jesus Christ, unlike every other religious leader or teacher who has come and gone, who's lived and died, Christ alone rose from the dead. His tomb is empty. Therefore, we don't just follow the teachings of some long gone religious leader. We worship and we serve and we trust in and we're empowered by the living Lord of glory. It's because He's alive that we can experience His power in our lives. As the hymn we sang uh, says, because He lives, I can face tomorrow. What can tomorrow bring me when Jesus lives? Because He lives, all fear is gone. What do I have to fear? Jesus lives because I know He holds the future and life is worth the living just because He lives. Knowing that Jesus rose from the dead and that He lives today should, uh, it, it must empower us to experience the victorious Christian life. But is that what we're experiencing Is that what we're consistently seeing in our lives? Are you consistently walking with Christ? Are you living for Christ? Are you seeking to glorify Christ with your whole life? Are you overcoming sin? Are you living in obedience? Is your life characterized by a love for God and a love for people? Are you sharing the love of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, with those who need to know Him, with those who need to trust in Him? Are you experiencing the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward you? My guess is, most of us, myself included, would answer these questions with, uh, uh, well, not so much. Not so much. Oh, I have my moments, 
But to say that I consistently experience this immeasurable power, the immeasurable greatness of God's resurrection power in my life, that would, that would be a stretch. So today I want to offer you hope. I want to offer myself hope. Take courage. Apparently, it was a stretch for the Christians in Ephesus as well. But Paul believed that prayer could affect change in their lives. That's why he prayed that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward them. And my prayer and the point of this message is for us to know and experience the immeasurable greatness of God's resurrection power toward us. Now to do that, we need to first understand uh, that there are reasons why we don't know and experience God's power. This immeasurable power is toward us. It's for us. It's available to us. But, but if we're not experiencing it, we need to know the reason why. And, and so we need to see, and this is the second point, the problem of knowing God's resurrection power. And Paul's prayer reveal, reveals our problem. Beginning in verse 17, he prays this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Notice, notice. I, I love this prayer. I, this is my, I, I think, my favorite prayer in all of Scripture. Because notice this prayer. How different this prayer is from how we usually pray. Paul isn't praying for health or wealth. He's not praying for good grades or the removal of problems. He's not praying for any physical situation. Those seem to dominate our prayers. He's praying for there, for our ability to understand spiritual reality. He's praying that Christians would have spiritual wisdom and that the knowledge of God would be revealed to us, that, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would see what we cannot see. Our problem is our inability to perceive and understand spiritual reality. Reality that's not, not, not seen with our physical eyes, but with the wisdom and knowledge of God and, and from God. Wisdom and knowledge that comes from an enlightened heart. There are spiritual realities that we must see and understand and know and experience. And Paul prays for us to know two basic spiritual realities. One I'll mention and the other one we'll focus on. Our problem is that because of our spiritual dullness, we don't know, we don't understand, we don't experience these realities. So first, he prays that, that you may know what is the hope to which you call, he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That you, You'll know you've been called by God to something big. And, and, that, and that there are these riches of this glorious inheritance to the saints. This isn't the main point of the message, but it's worth mentioning. We need to have eyes. We need to have our eyes open to the reality of what awaits us what awaits those who believe that God through Jesus Christ has prepared us for a glorious inheritance. An inheritance that we will receive and experience throughout all of eternity. We need God to open our eyes to this truth. We need to see it. We need to allow this truth to impact the way we live. Living not for uh, the here and now, the temporal, not storing up treasures here on earth, but living for the eternal, 
living for that glorious inheritance that that he's going to give us, that future inheritance. But it's not just the future that we're to look to. Our problem is we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe right now. Notice Paul's praying that we know something. That we have knowledge of something, you know, back spirit of wisdom and, and a knowledge of God, and we need to know something. He didn't pray what we're usually praying for, uh, that we would receive something. He didn't pray that we would receive the riches of our glorious inheritance. He didn't pray that we would receive the immeasurable power of God. He's praying that we would know these things. And what that says is that in Christ, we already have them. You have the inheritance. You have the immeasurable power of God. The problem is, you and I don't know them as we should. We're so spiritually blind, we don't see them. We can't seem to get the right prescription for the eyes of our heart. We can't focus on our future and eternal inheritance in the saints, and we can't focus on the immeasurable power of God towards us right now. Because we're distracted. We're so distracted. We're distracted by the the pleasures and the problems, I'll call them, of this world. We're distracted by our own sinful habits that dull God's wisdom and knowledge. Sin puts this dull glaze. I mean, I've experienced this. It, It puts this dull glaze over the eyes of our heart. And we can't see spiritually. I mean, seriously, how can we focus on knowing the power that God has toward us when we spend our time binge-watching Netflix? We are so distracted. We're also distracted by the pain and suffering of this world. If we can't see into our glorious future, we won't know the power of God. We're looking, we're too focused on the here and now. This world can become overwhelming to us. We can be overcome by fear and worry every time we hear or or read the news. Why is this terrible thing happening? Why another school shooting? Why are we still at, at war? Why are we still struggling with racism? And so much more. And I'm not saying we shouldn't think about and address these and other issues, but we must see beyond these things. We need to have the scales removed from the eyes of our heart. We need to see the greatness of the immeasurable power of God toward us. We need to know God is at work in our lives and that God is at work in our world, even in these difficult things, and we need to trust in Him. That's what Paul's praying for the church in Ephesus. He's praying for them to know the power of God in their lives. He knows he can't change their perception. He can't change their hearts. Only God can. And that's why he's praying. But he also knows, and this is important for us to know, just a a principle about prayer, that God uses means. God uses things to answer prayer. For example, we pray... We Christians, we pray for the salvation of our friends and our family. But God does not answer our prayer by directly placing the truth of the gospel, by twisting their mind to believe. He answers it by enabling them, giving them the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the means. 
It's by hearing the gospel that God opens heart, hearts and causes belief. And the same is true for Paul's prayer. God uses means to give us wisdom and to give us knowledge to open the eyes of our hearts. That we might know of our inheritance and that we might know of His great power toward us. And so along with the prayer, Paul, uh, Paul adds the pictures of knowing God's resurrection power. That's our third final point this morning. Paul's praying that God would, would break through the church in Ephesus' blindness, but this applies to us. That's why it made it into the New Testament. That God would break through our spiritual dullness that we might know and experience the immeasurable greatness of His power, uh, His resurrection power towards us now. But how do we know that that power exists? How do we know it's at work in us? What's, what's the evidence? The evidence Paul gives are pictures, a series of pictures of the resurrection power at work in Jesus Christ. And, and we'll see how that power at work in Jesus Christ applies to us in every situation. The first picture is, is of the resurrection itself. Verse 19. I think into, into verse 20. What is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead? Jesus didn't somehow survive the cross and stagger out of the grave. No one stole His body. The tomb was empty because by God's great might, He raised Jesus from the dead. Now, raising someone from the dead certainly is a picture of immeasurable power, right? But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is even more than that. It's more than just one man being brought back to life. The resurrection of Christ means the death itself of death. The death has been defeated. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This means that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is power toward us who believe. We too will experience resurrection. We are promised that when we die, by God's power towards us, we will be raised up to eternal life in His presence. But even now, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, the next chapter, right after, he says, even when uh, we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. God's power towards us is now. And it raises us spiritually from the dead and gives us life and faith now. When we were dead in our sins, in our trespasses, when there was nothing we could do because we were a corpse, we had no power. I don't think I would have had to say this 10 years ago, but now I must say zombies aren't real. A corpse has no power. There are no walking dead. God, by grace, by His unmerited favor, when we were dead, saved us from our captor sin. And by His immeasurable power, He made us alive together with Christ. That's resurrection power towards us. And there's more. 
The resurrection of Christ not only means that death, the death of death, it means victory over sin. That's what Paul says as he continues in 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of our sin, uh, revealed by the law, we were sentenced to death. There's a, a, a death sentence hanging over your head. But by the power of God, both sin and death have been defeated by Jesus Christ. And this sin-defeating power is available to us. We, have, uh, we can have victory over sin through the Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross, Christ died for our sin. For our sins past, for our sins present, for our sins future. And Christ rose that we might be empowered, not just to be forgiven from our sin. Amen. Thank you very much. We're forgiven of our sin. But then to have victory over sin. If you're struggling with sin of of any kind, look to Christ. Pause. Take a picture that you've been raised in Christ. That you're a new creation in Christ. That Christ has made you alive. That you might overcome uh, this, this death of sin. Know that in Christ you've been made alive. Picture yourself alive in Christ. And know you've received the power to achieve victory over sin now. And there's still more. Not only can we know God's power when He raised Christ from the dead, He then, Paul says, seated Him at the right hand in heavenly places. God demonstrated His acceptance of Christ's sacrificial death by not only raising Him from the dead, but bringing Him into heaven and and seating Him at His right hand. And that power, this is mind-blowing here, So uh, pay attention. That power that plays Jesus, and we're okay with Jesus being at God's right hand, right? That's good. That's where he belongs. Sinless, perfect Jesus. Plays Jesus at God's right, right hand. Puts us there as well. I wouldn't have believed it if I didn't read it for myself. Do you know that right now, if you've trusted in Christ, you're seated in the heavenlies. Ephesians 2, 5 again. Next chapter. Even when you were dead in our trespasses, made al- made us, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus now. Present tense. We're not only raised, we're made alive. We're not only made alive with Christ, we've been seated in the heavenly places with Christ. The power that took Jesus from death and put Him eternally in God's presence put you there as well if you're in Christ. Picture yourself already seated with Christ in heaven. This speaks uh, volumes to our security in Christ. God not only saves us, but in Christ He will preserve us in the heavenlies. Yes, we continue to exist and we continue to face trials and temptations here on earth, but in some mysterious way, and I don't, I don't claim to understand this, I claim to believe it, in some mysterious way, God will, like, like, like we do with a rare treasure, God will secure us in His presence, will take us under His wing. 
This is amazing, and this should impact the way we live. Know that if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, by God's immeasurable power toward you, your salvation is secure. And therefore, you know, we talked, I'm not going to go here, but just to, to, to mention this, this is where we've been in Romans. That doesn't mean that you continue in sin. Because that's where our mind uh, will go. But that's crazy talk, right? Because Christ has entered into your life. Christ is transforming you. And so uh, know that if you've trusted in Christ, by God's immeasurable power toward you, your salvation is secure. And therefore, you need not live in fear. You can live in the power of Christ. You can risk all things for Christ because in Christ there are no risks. You're secure in Christ. You can live in love and service to Christ and to others. You can live not for yourself, but for the glory of God. For the glory of Christ. You can live in the power and the knowledge that you're seated in heavenly places with Christ right now. And the pictures of power continue to come. Verse 21, Through the immeasurable greatness of God's power, Christ is seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places Get this, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Uh, That pretty much covers it all, right? In Ephesians chapter 6, the same book, as I was uh, preparing this message, I'm going, "Uh, we need to go to Ephesians next. Like in how many years? You know, we're in chapter 7 of Romans now, we got... A few more to go, but Ephesians is in my heart. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, in the passage about spiritual warfare, maybe you're familiar with it, putting on the armor of God, Paul identifies this rule and authority and power and dominion to include uh, spiritual forces of evil. Remember them? We talked about them in the beginning. Specifically, Satan and his demonic forces. And Jesus is not just slightly above these evil forces. He's, they're not here and he's, he's here. He's far and away above them. I probably, well, he can see all things, but if it was us, we couldn't even see that far. He's far above every name that is named throughout all of history. Paul wrote in Colossians 2.15 that at the cross, he, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. So because of the crucifixion and through the resurrection, Jesus was exalted over all the hosts of hell. This means that Satan and his forces have been defeated. By the power of God, death and sin and Satan have been defeated. They're not yet out of the world, and and battles are yet to be fought, but praise God, they're defeated enemies. You know, when you watch a historical movie, I I just watched a really good movie. I I don't recommend movies, especially from here very often, but I watched a movie called Darkest Hour. Uh, It's really the story of Winston Churchill's first month as, as war is going on in, in, in Britain. It's that, you know, the Dunkirk, if you saw the movie Dunkirk, that's happening at the same time, and it looks horrendous. And I'm going, I'm think, I know what's going to happen, you know, because this is history. But they have to fight the battles. You know, and I'm going, oh my gosh, as I watch this thing, they almost didn't have Churchill, and they would have been in big trouble. 
because these other guys were weenies. I'm sorry, can I say that? They were, they were you know, I mean, again, this is a movie. I haven't read the book, but... Uh, but we see it, we, we need to see it from that kind of perspective. It's a done deal. Even though we're still involved in the fighting, we're fighting defeated foes. And we have the power to fight uh, both sin and Satan. Not with our power, but with the immeasurable greatness uh, of God's power toward us. We fight with the same power that God used in Christ to defeat all the, the rule and authority and power and dominion. If you're in Christ, and Christ is over all, then you have the power to overcome all the enemy's attacks, those fiery uh, darts. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.13, love this passage, no temptation has taken you but is, is not, that is not common to men. These, these things happen. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation. He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That way of escape, uh, the way we endure the temptations and the attacks of sin and Satan is by the power of God toward us. God empowers us to run, to flee uh, from the devil, to flee from temptation, and, and to run into His loving arms, knowing we've been made alive in Christ, seeing ourselves seated in the heavenly, heavenlies, overcoming sin and Satan, living in the power that God has toward us. And that brings us to the final picture of Paul's prayer. This I approach with a little bit of fear because it, it, it's, it's a little difficult to understand. So hang with me. We not only see God's power in the resurrection and in Jesus seated in the heavenlies far above all. Verse 22 says, into 23, And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Jesus is not just far above the spiritual forces of evil, Satan, demonic forces. By God's power, all things are under Jesus' feet. The risen Christ is head over all things. That word head means He has authority. He rules over all. And that word all in the Greek means all. Okay? So Jesus Christ has authority over all of history, over all humans, over demons, over disease, over nature, over hurricanes and lightning and tornadoes and volcanoes and earthquakes and floods and even global warming. Over business and healthcare and sports, Jesus has authority over March Madness, entertainment, the internet, social media, over military, governments, kings, religions, universities, over solar systems and stars and galaxies and molecules and atoms and subatomic particles and... Are quarks a real thing, Michael? I, I don't know. Okay, and quarks, are those smaller? Okay, I, I consult my physicist's son when, when I need to. And over 10,000 things that no one else has yet discovered. Jesus is head over everything. And if you're His, if you're in Christ, what does that mean for you? Now, I know it's, it's getting late and we need to get to our Easter egg hunt, but hang in there. Notice the context in which Paul says that Jesus is head over all things. The context is God giving Jesus to the church, to His body. 
Which means that, that he is, of course, the all-powerful head of the church. Jesus is the head. We're the body of Christ. He's the head of his body. He's your head. He's my head. He's all of our authorities. But it also means that Christ is our gift. He was given to us by God to rule over us. A little rebellion in our American hearts, right? I don't want anybody ruling over me. But he is the perfect ruler. He's perfect and gracious and compassionate and loving and all-powerful. And he is the ruler that we long for. Which means he not only rules, but he also serves. He serves as our leader and our savior. And he is our servant king. He demonstrated this while he was on earth on that uh, Friday evening before he went to the cross when he, when he removed his garment and took up the towel and washed his disciples' feet. That's the kind of ruler Jesus is. And we have access to him and we have relationship with him and he serves us. I mean, we serve him. He's the, he's the Lord of glory. But he seeks to better us, to empower us to walk with us, to care for us, to love us. He's not a, he's not a uh, what's the word? Mean is the best. He's not a terrible dictator. He's a loving Lord. He freely gives himself and his power to us. And we, his church, his body, are the fullness of him. We're in this together, by the way. He's now given, uh, he doesn't say he gives us, he's given to us individually. He's given to the church, to us. If you want to experience that, you have to be part of the church. We're part of Christ and we're in Christ. And the fact that he fills all in all means that we are filled with Christ. And Christ fills us, uh, fills all of us with uh, all of us, the church. God's power towards us means He fills all things with His uh, crucified and His risen Son. And He makes us, the church, the embodiment of that fullness. We are Christ's representatives. We are Christ's ambassadors. We're to fill the earth with Christ. He rules. When He rules, we will rule. He created humanity in the beginning to inhabit a beautiful creation. To subdue it and to enjoy it and to reflect His glory in it. And that's what He intends to do through the new humanity. His body, the church. He'll fill creation with all of His fullness. With all the fullness of His glory. And you and I will be that fullness. His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. This is the immeasurable greatness of God's power at work toward you now. This may not be easy to grasp, to hold on to, and I'm not sure I've done that uh, great of a job expressing it, because to be honest, I don't know if I understand all of it. But I know it's awesome. And we need to know it. And that's why Paul is praying. When we think about our lives, we need to think in terms of this immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us. We need to know that the power we have seen pictured in Christ and in our lives in Christ, and we need to live in that power. 
That power that raised Christ and made us alive in Him. That power that seated Christ in the heavenlies and and secured our salvation. That power that placed placed Christ above uh, and over all and enables us to defeat death and sin and Satan. That power that fills us with Christ that we might fill our world with Him. That we might love Him and live for Him and glorify Him in all that we say, in all that we do. That's the result of this immeasurable greatness of God's resurrection power towards those who believe. And so I want to close our time together in in the same way Paul addressed the church in Ephesus. Through prayer. I want to pray for us. You know, we've been given the means. We've seen the Word of God. Now we need God to work in our hearts. I want to pray that we today and every day now and next week will know, will experience the resurrection power of God in our lives. And I I would invite you even now to stand with me, just signifying your desire to be part of that experience, to be part of His body, to be part of who He fills all in all. Would, Would you stand with me as I pray? Lord God, you are so amazing. Your love is amazing. It sent you to the cross. It motivated you to send your son to the cross to die in our place, Lord. What an amazing love. Unfathomable, ununderstandable love that you would die for those who were in rebellion against you. We can't understand it. And not only die, Lord, you would be raised from the dead with great power and you would give that power to us, Lord. I pray that you would open our eyes. I pray that you would give us spiritual wisdom. I pray that you would give us the knowledge of you, of who you truly are. That you would open the eyes of our hearts to see the spiritual reality. That we would see our inheritance in you and in the saints and glory. And we would see that this power that you've offered us, that you've given to us, Lord, that we would know it and that we would experience and that we would live in it today and, and every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to say one more thing uh, before we sing our final song. You can stay sat, standing. We'll, we'll sing. Maybe, maybe you've come here today not as a, a believer. Not as a, this message was clearly for the church. Clearly for Christians who've, who've, who've been saved by Christ and, and who understand and believe in His resurrection. But maybe you've come as a skeptic or a seeker or, or, or just because a friend or a, a family member, member invited you to Easter service. Well, thank you for, for coming. And maybe all, all this talk about the resurrection and the power of God at work in your lives and in the lives of Christians has made you curious. Maybe you have questions. Maybe you've heard something you didn't expect. Something that makes you want to take a closer look at at Jesus. Take a closer look at who Jesus Christ is, at His life, at His death, at His resurrection. If that's the case, then I would encourage you, even after this service, to speak to me, to speak to someone, maybe the person that invited you. Or you can use the prayer card in front of you. We have prayer cards in front of us uh, to just indicate your interest to know more about Christ. We'd love to help you know more about our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God bless you, and let's worship Him together now.